And now, Welcome to Prunercast. Yeah, business cards being swapped, beers being drunk. Can I say a nasty word? Can I say procrastination? With Pete Williams and Don Kosher. How well did that go down? We can talk about that entire thing in a very another rant and soapbox episode if you want to. Visit us online at prunermarketing.com. Hello on this fine evening. How are you, sir? Yeah, I am 25 yards from the beach, sat in the bar. Mate, do you have a corona in hand? No, it's, uh, it's coffee at the moment. I was, uh, was going to have the beer after the call. <laughs> Fair enough. So, what's, what's been happening this week? Oh, just, you know, just training, which has been good. Plenty of training. Um, had lunch with the uh, Melbourne Marketing Elite on, uh, would have been Thursday? No, Wednesday this week. I think it would have been, yeah, Wednesday this week. Had, had lunch with a, a whole bunch of people, which is great. It was Ed Dale, Rob Somerville, Danny Batalic, uh Mike Rhodes, Steve Evans, Dave Jennings, myself... Uh, and a couple of uh, Ed's mentoree students as well. So it was a, uh, a great little luncheon in, um, in in the city. So it was a good sort of catch up and good feed and good conversation and, and good people. It was uh, well, that's that's quite a crowd. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Like literally half my, well, half the people there were from my office now, given that uh, Mike and Davey J are, uh, and their team have moved in. So it was kind of funny. You know, we all sort of like shared a cab on the way back almost. Well, I drove and I just gave them all a lift. Um, so that was kind of funny. But uh, no, it was great. Good to catch up with everybody. I hadn't seen Rob and Ed in, in a while. And um, yeah, it was, it, that was really good. That was... So I'm, I'm guessing it was a, a social call and, and, and no, no podcasts, interviews, masterminds or any of that kind of stuff was done and on during, during the session. No, no. I tried to start a food fight um, with Danny and Ed to sort of, you know, get them back for their, their current rating in the um, iTunes stores for their Domination podcast. But uh it was a, a quite classy restaurant. Ed likes to uh, dine fine, if you will. So um, the the food fight kind of ended before it started. But uh, I, I was trying to fight for us. But yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you're sticking up for us over on that side. I'll. Uh... But d- don't worry, don't worry. We're we're a slow burner. Ed went for the the kind of quick hit by by asking his list to, you know, to do some ratings and stuff. But I think you know we're we're a slow burn. We're we're going for the quality long-haul content delivery idea well we're all about the quality here we are absolutely all about the quality and the uh and that sort of stuff but uh yes we'll uh we'll build up a solid loyal base of listeners over time it's been going great so far i've got some amazing feedback from uh, emails and obviously the itunes feedback's been great but the, the email interaction has been been awesome getting a few emails every week which i'm i'm really loving so excellent it's good i was talking to a couple of other podcasters not ed and, and uh, Dan, but a few other podcasters who sort of say that you know they've got big listener bases according to Feedburner, but not a lot of interaction. So, um, very proud of our, our listener base. That's sort of obviously very interactive, which is great. So, cool. All right. Um, so, so last week and the week before and the week before and I think even the week before, you mentioned that you were going to actually talk to us about context and framing. Yes. And. Uh, I'm just now. I'm off the edge of my seat. I'm. All, I'm. I'm. You know. I'm now hanging over the balcony with suspense on this. One. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll get into it. I've got a story to share, which uh, we'll 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 put the whole um, conversation of context into context. How's that for a, a pun on a pun inside a a bad joke? Um, so let me start the story. The young man awoke in darkness. In a strange room, in a strange city. The economy of motion he used as he went about preparing himself for the day ahead indicated that he was accustomed to awakening in unfamiliar rooms. The clothes he chose for the task ahead 
while comfortable, blue jeans, a long sleeve shirt, and a dark baseball cap were very different from those he usually wore. He may have laughed to himself as he dressed, thinking that even those who knew him best would not recognise him in this costume. That, that's what it was. It was a costume. On this day, he wanted to fit in, to be inconspicuous, invisible even. The event that he was about to set into motion had been planned for weeks. He had never done anything like this before, and probably never would again. He may have even been slightly nervous at the prospect at what lay ahead. If he was nervous, he would have been amused at his own response. As he prepared to leave the room, he may have even checked the contents of the small black case he would be taking with him. The people he would come into contact with on that day would have been amazed to know what lay inside the case. The case, not so different from the briefcases many of them carried, but the contents was worth more than they would earn in a lifetime of work. In fact, it was worth several million dollars, and it was about to unleash its power on slightly more than 1,000 unsuspecting inhabitants of Washington, D.C., and most of them would never have even known it. As he left the hotel, he hailed a cab and asked the driver to drop him at a train station that was within walking distance of his final destination. He did not want to arrive in a taxi. He was going to take the train because he was seeking anonymity. Waiting is the word that best describes Washington, D.C., in the middle of January anyway. Washington is a city of stone built to impress, not to offer comfort. The Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, the reflecting pool that in other seasons are awe-inspiring. At this time of year, are merely cold and lifeless. They, like the half-million inhabitants of the city, appear to be waiting for spring to warm the granite and marble and bring the city back to life. But that wouldn't happen until the cherry trees began to bloom during the first week of April. In the second week of January, with the holiday season over, the city appears to be in hibernation. You see, Washington is a city that doubles in size every workday morning and shrinks again every evening. Like a great ocean with a twice-daily tide made up of people, most of those actually live in the city perform the jobs that keep it running. They are the waiters, the waitresses, cab drivers, shop clerks, the firefighters and police, the nurses and the trash collectors. They are part of the city's infrastructure. Many of the half million people who invade the city during rush hour are government employees. Most of them live in the suburbs of Maryland and Virginia. Every morning and every evening, they clog the freeways and the surface streets, slowing traffic to a snail's pace. A great many of those who participate in this daily pilgrimage soon decide to leave their cars at home and take the train into the city. The Lafont Plaza metro station is among the busiest, if not the busiest, commuter train hubs in Washington, D.C. The station is at the centre of activity in the nation's capital. Four of the five train lines converge on this station. But it's not a destination. It's a portal, a funnel, a collection and a distribution point through which thousands of city workers must pass every day. It is intentionally impersonal, and it was designed to be clean and efficient, not beautiful. So let's get back to that Friday morning in January. At a few minutes past 7.30am, the young man entered one of the many commuter trains with his black case tucked under his arm. Dressed as he was, he blended in with the commuters. If any of the other riders that morning noticed the man at all, it probably would have been because he entered the Orange Line train at one stop and immediately exited at the next. They may have wondered fleetingly why he didn't just walk. 
At 7.51am on Friday, January 12th, it was morning rush hour and business as usual. Most of those exiting the train at Lafont Plaza on that particular morning were on their way to work in the various US government offices that surrounded the station. As the passengers exited the train and rode the escalator up to the arcade level, those directly behind him may have registered a moment of annoyance when he stopped in front of them, forcing them to veer from their straight line they'd been walking. The young man chose a spot near the wide glass exit doors that led directly into the shopping mall and placing the black case carefully at the feet, opened it and removed his most prized possession. Some may have been momentarily curious or amused when this unassuming young man lifted an old violin from the case and began to play. He even threw a handful of change into the open case as seed money. Just another street musician, they may have thought to themselves. This city seemed to be full of them these days. Most of the busy commuters would not have registered his presence at all. Had they known, they may have been surprised to find that, after playing for 43 minutes, the young man had amassed the huge sum of $32 and change. Okay, so let's now view this scene again, but this time let's uh, look at it through the uh, you know, always perfect context lens of hindsight, knowing a little bit more about what actually happened. Those who actually noticed this young man and the musician, he was playing an old violin, and they'd be correct, probably more so than they could ever have imagined. To be precise, the violin was 296 years old, a Stradivarius crafted in 1713. The young violinist giving the apparently impromptu performance in the metro station could never have afforded such an instrument on the $44.65 per hour he averaged that morning. But fortunately for him and the world, Joshua Bell, the violinist playing the metro station that morning, is accustomed to earning $1,000 a minute for his regular performances. Even so, he had to sell his own Stradivarius to afford the reported $3.5 million he paid for the instrument he was playing that day. So what could possibly entice Joshua Bell, the undisputed sweetheart of the classical set, to play his Stradivarius violin for the early morning commuters in Washington, D.C.'s metro station? First, you have to understand there was nothing impromptu about this performance. He did not wake up and say, I think I will treat the office workers to a free concert this morning. Although if you knew him, you might believe he would actually do that. But three days before his performance at the metro station, Bell played to a packed house at Boston's Symphony Hall, where, he, where just average seats went for 100 bucks. Tall, good-looking and single, Joshua David Bell has come a long way from his birthplace in Bloomington, Indiana. You might describe him as the rock star of classical music. Unlike many medi- mediocre performances, sorry, unlike many mediocre performers, his blazing talent has not robbed him of his humility or his humanity. Bell describes the word genius, at least when applied to him, and only tolerates the term prodigy when used in the past tense, even though he was plucking tunes from rubber bands stretching across a dresser drawer at four years of age. The Metro concert was proposed to Bell by the prestigious newspaper, The Washington Post, shortly before Christmas that year. The idea was to see how many people would respond to great music if they encountered it in an unsuspecting setting. A stunt? Bell asked. The Washington Post agreed that it could be considered a stunt. Sounds like fun, Bell responded. Now on that morning, that Friday morning, only one person 
out of the 1,097 passerbys recognized Joshua Bell. Let's call her SF. Although SF admittedly doesn't know a lot about classical music, she attended a free concert Bell had given at the Library of Congress just three weeks earlier. SF said that she had no idea what the heck was going on, but she wasn't about to miss it. She chose a spot 10 metres in front of Bell and stood there transfixed with a big grin on her face for the next 10 minutes. Unfortunately, she showed up near the end of his performance. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington, SF said. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour and people were not stopping, not even looking at him, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! I wouldn't do that to anybody, I was thinking. Oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? But had she not attended the concert three weeks before? She too probably would have just passed by, barely registering his presence. And it's a story that um, was originally, not that exact story, but there was originally that exact thing happened. Washington um, Post newspaper did a, uh, a, uh, a stunt, as you know, Joshua Bell referred to it as, to sort of see what happens when the, the musician, the instrument, and the music is exactly the same, but the context in which the city of Washington would see it in, where that would actually change the reactions of people and um, what happened. And there's a great article that, that sort of goes in a lot more depth of actually what happened and that it was all filmed by Hidden Camera and they sort of really dissect exactly what people did and how they reacted and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But um, there's also some video too, which is really cool to sit and watch actually him playing and, and the people moving around and stuff. And it's a story that I really, really love because it just talks about or sets up a great conversation for context because you know this guy gets you know paid a thousand dollars an hour typically when he plays his three point five million dollar violin, which is just ridiculous. Um, you know, so he he hasn't changed. The violin hasn't changed. It's probably only got more valuable. Uh, and the music would be exactly the same. Yes, the acoustics might not have been as great as the Boston Symphony, but um, it's interesting to see that, you know, in the context of knowing who he is, people would pay $100 minimum to see him play. This is US dollars a few years ago, so it was actually worth some currency at the time. But, you know, in today's world, or in this world here, on that particular day in that January, people just completely ignored him and just walked past him like it was anybody else, didn't give him the time of day because the context around him wasn't right. I always find that really, really interesting. And um, just context in general, obviously, is something that really intrigues me. Wow, what a story. Um, I kind of wish I had got a beer now instead of a coffee. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just interesting because that's just the whole, you know, the context of, 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 him, of, his, of a performance makes the performance so much different. Uh, you know, and that's sort of, you know, look at it in the music world, like, you know, that so many people go to a concert but they're not really going for the music anymore, anymore. They're going for everything around that. The context of what a concert is is no longer about the music anymore. And there's so many other conversations we can have about context that just is, is, is very important, I think, for people to really grasp and, and understand and and just be aware that, that context is so important when they're doing stuff in their life. And we can kind of you know talk about some examples in a moment if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to get your thoughts on how this maps back to business and, and the other topics that we, you know, this, this came up because we were talking about um, making proposals, writing proposals and giving them to people or approaching people. Um, it came up in the, in, the, in the JV and affiliate uh, um, podcast we did a few weeks ago. Um, so I am definitely interested in how this maps. Although you're right, I mean, context is everything. You know, one of the things I heard said, a long time ago was um, 
by by an internet marketer was you know however good you think you are at this in this industry or whatever else you set foot out outside your front door and and say internet marketing to somebody you're never going to find an average person on the street who even knows what you're talking about yeah. so you know be be aware that it's it's, it's massively important yeah. um con- context and and is massively important to, to whatever you do. Yeah, like if we sort of go into the, the root level of, of product creation, I guess, you know, you know, think about, you know, how much you're willing to pay for a book. You know, most people won't pay more than 20 bucks for a book. And, you know, with the advent of the you know, iTunes bookstore and uh, the Kindle, most people aren't willing to pay more than $10 for a, uh, a digital book. Uh, which is fair enough. That's sort of that's, that's a marketplace and that's a market expectations. When you show someone a book, they obviously have a predetermined price in mind. They just have this context of what that should be worth. But then, if you actually take that book and you, um, uh, you know, hopefully you're doing doing it right and putting more content involved, but you turn it into a, a three ring boulder binder, sorry, three ring binder type product. And you do an audio version of it, um, and you you know you get some DVDs and some CDs and all that sort of stuff, uh, and you can and people are selling that for you know two three four grand and or five hundred bucks or whatever price point it is, and you know that information, uh, you know if it's good should be worth that because if someone implements it and makes their money back, and then then all all the power to you to charge that price. Uh, I think it's justified if you are selling high priced information products that you give a, a huge value that you know when people actually implement the stuff they make more money back but you know the context has changed the frame in which that information is presented has changed which means you can actually um, justifiably uh, charge more for that and, and people won't have that predeceived concept of how much it's worth and you know on the proposal stuff we spoke about is it's it's really important as a marketer I think really what a marketer's job is to a certain extent is to is to establish context or, or change frame around something. So, you know, if you rather than just making your proposal for your, um, I think the analogy was a roof tiling or something like that. If you're a roof tiler or you're a, uh, you're teaching music um, one-on-one or you're a, a triathlon coach or whatever it might be, you really want to change the, the context and the frame in which people look at your service and the solution you offer from just being about the parts you know the telco example i gave is that you know most people in our space historically and still do today make it all about the um the parts and the pieces of plastic and the wiring and all that sort of stuff and you know that's makes people shop on price and it's really important to sort of change that context a little bit and say look it's more than just pieces of plastic the context is different it's about the solution it's about the support uh and you do that by using language in the conversations and the sales pitches and the, the, the meetings, but also in the proposals you do. You, you, you create a, a proposal that changes the context and the frame in which people are making a decision, and I think that's really important. I, I'm really glad that you, you kind of moved from context into framing because you, know, you and I have, have talked about, about context and framing in the past, independent of the podcast, um, and it was something that... it was a, it, I'd never labelled it framing, but it was something that I was aware of. This, this, the the book example is is excellent. It's really a fantastic example, as you say, um, that people go online now and they can they can go to the Kindle store and, on average, they expect to pay nine dollars ninety nine, ten dollars, whatever you want to, you know, somewhere around there. They expect to pay ten dollars because that information in the Kindle store has been commoditized, and so they're not really in, in the same way, even if you think about it, that that, uh, that Joshua Bell was was kind of commoditized by being seen as just another busker, 
in in that context, in the context of the subway station, somebody playing on the side of the of the subway station is seen automatically as a busker, unless they really stand out or they're recognised for something else. Then then that's what's going to happen, you know. Yep. And uh, to to really just extend that, if somebody had put a sign over his head say, with a photo of his of his concert poster or whatever, you know, this is Joshua Bell, point, 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 that, that would have been enough to change that context. It's a little bit of marketing. Uh, for, for people to, a little bit of marketing. And so, you know, moving on from there to the book, just slapping a book up into the Kindle store, well, you know, you're in, you're in the context of the Kindle store. People have an expectation in a context. So, and, and as you were saying, you need to break them out of that by framing. And framing is the real interest to me. It how we get people to recognize the value in our products or services, which is how the conversation between you and I started. It was how how you get people to realize that you're not just another X. You're not just another roof tiler. You're not just another music teacher. It's not just another e-book, but it's something that has value. That's where framing comes in, yeah? Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think it's just about... You know, what's what marketing is really? It's about sort of t- telling a, a story, is what Seth Godin calls it, or um, you know, if you studied NLP as a like a language um, a, a communication um, tool set, it, it's they talk about framing quite a bit about changing the frame of something to help people understand what you're trying to get to. And look, to, to try and sum up how to how to frame something correctly is more than a podcast. It's a it's a series of workshops. It's a lifetime of work. It's a it's you know university degrees it's doctorates like that is just marketing it's working out how can you change the the way people perceive your product and your solution and your service in a way that helps you increase the conversion rate increase the um sale point value or the price point uh and increase the evangelism that you can get in your product like you know think of apple as a way like they've created a cult because they sort of frame their products as more than just pieces of plastic and, and some wiring. There's a whole story and experience around that because they've framed it differently. They've framed that, that whole Mac versus PC thing. They've really deliberately created that context that you're either a, a Mac person or you're a PC person. So that when you become a Mac person, it's either it's me against the world, it's me against everyone else, and my side's good and your side's bad. So it creates that, that evangelism-type atmosphere that means you're going to go out and talk to people, and they created that framework by that ad series. You know, that, and that over time they you know build up that. You know, Guy Kawasaki, um, you know, spoke about it years ago at a presentation that I or recording I heard when I was about eighteen, I think it was, from the Million Dollar Roundtable. Uh, an awesome, awesome presentation, and uh, it's basically was a precursor to um, Art of the Start and a couple of the earlier books. And he talks about that he was you know really focused on creating evangelism for for the Mac, but. You know, it, it's hard to sort of decipher exactly how to how to frame something. I know you and I had a con- conversation about framing and, and and stuff when you were having some some conversations with some clients. Yeah, I mean, but the, to me, I mean, I I agree with you completely that the 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 study of, of how you do this, you know, being coming an expert at doing this, it, it's it's a, a skill all in and of itself. There are people that that's all they do. You know, copywriters and and high-level marketing consultants and business consultants, that's what they do. They've studied their entire lives to do it. But, you know, have we got have we got some, some tips, some little ideas that, that people can do? I mean, it's, for me, for me, the one that, that, you know, stood out, you actually mentioned it earlier on, 
just identifying the the benefits kind of the fitting fitting your product or your service into into the the vision uh of the of the client's future it seems to me you'd be in a way of framing this as you, your your telco example you know listing the fact that you'll get two xy47 handsets and three i don't know do hickey whatnots <laughs> and and so on and so on is isn't isn't going to excite anybody. Let's use a Guy Kawasaki word. It's not going to enchant anybody. And it's certainly not going to speak to them and tell them why they should choose your service above anyone else's. But by, by saying, by listing the benefits of having these things or even, you know, listing the, the extra features of that particular handset that, that make it better than somebody else's handset, those things surely are, are helping to frame that, uh, that service. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's all about not trying to do the best job you can at not making your product a commodity. And, you know, this is the interesting thing, which is a whole other um, conversation about the sort of the, the, the growth of Groupon and all these daily deal sites is people are basically making their product commodities because they're just going back to it's all about price. You know, and, and I'd love to see the retention rates and the return rates of some of these businesses who are going to these places like Groupon to get a new wave of customers into their actual restaurant or massage center or um, waxing place or whatever it might be, what is the retention rate of those type of clients to come back to you? If you're doing that group on things as a loss leader, you're basically making your product a commodity. It's all about price. And I reckon people who go to those group on places go there to buy cheap stuff, not because they want a good experience. They're never going to get back to you because they're going to buy the next restaurant deal that comes up. And uh, it's not really a direct correlation to what we're talking about, but uh, that that is putting yourself, you're deliberately putting yourself into a different a different commodity, into a different context that you shouldn't really be being. You want to try and get yourself out of those contexts and take it away from price. Um, so you want to make it so, you know, you're getting more than just these bits of plastic. You're getting more than just a roof that won't leak. You're getting more than just a massage, whatever it might be. <laughs> could be really taken, that last one could be taken really bad, couldn't it? You're getting more than just a massage. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, so, uh, look, but, you know, there's also just, in terms of context, if you sort of bring it back a little bit, I, I think context is important just in communication as well. Like if you're, you know, using Elance or Odesk and, and trying to get one-off jobs done, I think it's really important to actually communicate to those people the context of what you're asking them to do. You know, if you're asking them to write um, uh, some articles, for example, you want to tell them, hey, these articles are going to be going on my blog to be read by people here is the blog that they're going going on, or um, I want you to to do um, a script for my website that will do this. And the reason for this is this: this is the, the context of the whole project. You know, the the whole idea of you know maybe you want to get them to create a pop up that that pops up on your blog when someone um, lands on your site. So obviously, there's WordPress plugins and stuff like that. People don't have to email me. I know of lots of stuff. I'm just giving you an example. You might want someone to code that. But you know, you say I want someone to code a um, piece of script that will work on my website. That when someone lands on the page, after five seconds, a light box will pop up with an opt-in box for my Aweber um, email opt-in. Yeah, great. But you know, the context should be: I want that because I'm I'm getting a lot of traffic to this site over the next couple of weeks, and I want to make sure I capture those people as soon as they land on the site, so I get their email addresses to my opt-in list, so I can market to them later. You know, it might be pretty obvious to you, but it just puts the whole thing in context. And that developer might be able to give you some better advice. 
They might be able to actually go, oh, hang on, I've done something very similar, or here's a suggestion, because they know the context in which they're coding, the context in which they're doing something. And I think that that's really important. You know, if if one person has a job in a process, if you're building up your outsourcing team and there's going to be the whole process is going to be you want one person to do keyword research using Market Samurai. You want the next person to write the article. You want the next person to use um, Article Samurai, new software by the um, by Eugene and the boys over there at, um, at um, uh, Samurai. And then the next thing is to actually then take that article and um, syndicate it using something like Traffic Grab, James Tramco's product. You know, you could easily tell each person just their only one job of that particular task. When you see something in this Dropbox folder, go and grab it and do this with it. And that's fine. But if you give them the context of the entire process, it's going to give them a better understanding of what their job is. Give them more job satisfaction, job understanding. But if they have to decipher things because they're not quite clear of the actual step, they can actually look at it in the context of the whole project and understand better what they're meant to be doing so they can like stop asking you questions because they can make educated decisions based on the right context. So that's where context is important as well, is in communicating to, you, to your team so they actually understand where they're going. That's an excellent point, actually, that to, to get it back to context and to look at it from a different aspect. That whole team building, team communication thing, I think, is really important. Did I just change the context of the podcast about context? No, actually, oh, you okay. didn't. You may have reframed the information. Maybe. Yeah. All right. Sorry. <laughs> just, just to break that for a second, I just want to point out one of the benefits of, of recording in the bar is that the, of one of the very beautiful members of staff here has just brought me a beer to the table while I was recording. Awesome. So now I have, I have the view. I, I, I have the, the beer, and I have a good conversation. I reckon what you have to do, awesome. I reckon you should, take, you should take a snapshot of this right now and put it in the show notes. Do you know what? I'm going to do that. Awesome. Maybe also, can you take a photo with the lovely member of staff? Uh, I'll have to ask permission. They're a little bit shy, strangely enough, in this particular <laughs> bar. But we'll give it a go. We'll give it a go. So you're, not, you're not in that type um, of bar where they're not shy. Uh, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the context information for the team, you know, a number of people that talk about outsourcing, including yourself, you know, talk about building a team rather than just outsourcing. Um, and, and when you're building a team, you're looking for people to, to grow their knowledge about your business to be able to become more a part of your business. And they can only do that if you provide them with the information. If you, if you treat them as isolated black boxes that just do things when asked, then they're never going to be able to do that. But if you can give them the context, then, then one, it will help them perform that one task better. But as you say, you're an excellent example. Uh, and I know this is true of myself. If a client comes to me uh, and gives me the context of the video that they want producing, the sales video or the information product or the podcast or whatever it is, then I can give them the benefit of my experience. For example, somebody might come to me and say, hey, you know, I want this, uh, this audio recording editing. Okay, fine. But if they come to me and say, it's going to be a podcast, as you know, that's a massive difference. Yep. Because suddenly it's gone from an MP3 file, which, well, is just going to maybe, you know, maybe be played on a website, maybe not, don't know. But as a podcast, there's a lot more to it. And I can, I can add value by you know, adding the, the show graphic into the file, adding the, 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 the show notes, actually embedding those into the file itself. So if that file gets moved around and played outside of iTunes, then it's got more information. Maybe they need help with the, the feed or getting it on the iTunes 
store or whatever it is. But without that context information, I'm just going to do what I'm asked. It was so much more coherent than Actually, my, my example. I like it. <laughs> no, no, yours was a good example too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm more the service provider, so I can, you know, I can speak more to that. You are the person that asks for the service and sees the benefit of giving the context. Um, and so, it's, it, you know, it's good. We're coming at it from, from different sides. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's even just sort of the use of language, I think, helps change. Well, let's go a different tact. Even like when you're actually having a conversation with someone, it's really important to actually think about what they, what the context in which they're talking about something. You know, this is just a general sort of just human communication thing, really. Whether it's a, an argument or whatever it might be, is just really important to sort of see what their context is before you sort of, you know, go off the hook and, and make your own decisions or, or or understanding or assumptions. Is what's their context? How are they thinking about this? How are they coming at this? particular issue conversation problem solution whatever it might be what is their context it's you know their experience of the situation their entire experience what else is going on in their life it's 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 really interesting yeah from a business point of view i mean it's the most basic of basics but if you are designing an information product or writing a blog post, if you don't understand your audience, the context in which they are at right now in their experience levels, then you can't address their needs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You have to understand your target market because that's you know, the, the context in which they're, they're devouring your content sh- should dictate how you actually create your content. There we go. The context in which people consume your content should dictate the way you create your content. Is a a quote. Oh, now now you see now you've you've stepped over a line there. You stepped into my world, and I don't agree with you. Oh, okay. You ready for this? Bring one? it on. I know. I think I know what you're trying to say. Um, which is which is that that where that person is in their experience. It, you know, if you need to, you need to speak to them where they are. Yes, but quite literally, and this is absolutely an absolutely a topic for another conversation. Quite literally, and this is a mistake that a lot of people make. Not you, because we've talked about this. But what a lot of people do is go. Do you know what? I am. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna make this a podcast. I'm gonna make this a video record. I'm gonna do whatever. And then, and you're gonna throw it out. And 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 my audience will like this. In reality, what is happening now is that people are consuming our information in so many different formats from so many different places. Like right now, I'm in a bar by the sea. I'm not in my office. I don't have my 20x-inch iMac screen. Um, and I'm not on a full-speed connection. I'm borrowing a Wi-Fi. I might not want to see a full full screen HD video. I might want an audio file on my iPod while I'm cycling, like you do. True. Four and a half hours in the hills tomorrow. At six AM. And yet we still think you're sane. <laughs> Sorry, you tried to do as always. You know, but 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 as I say, this is a conversation for another time. That's why, you know, it's 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 very important that, that it's about understanding where these people are, what they understand, what they know, and making sure that everybody knows what the conversation is about. That's context. That's one kind of context. But actually trying to push somebody into a context or only providing something in one context could cause you problems. True. 
Very true. That's yeah. That's, that's definitely. We should we should do another episode in the future about uh, the consumption and how people consume stuff and how to actually create content that actually is uh, you know consumption friendly. That's probably a whole other episode. But I'd love to sort of you know we probably should wrap this up sooner. I'd love to leave people with a bit of an, an actionable thing uh, that I find really helpful when I actually communicate with people and trying to just change their context a little bit. So. Um, you know, if you ever have a disgruntled client or a customer or a disgruntled converse, having a, having one of those tough conversations, uh, something that I always I've seemed to to that's worked well for me over time is using a simple statement. And it's such a simple statement. It's not really NLP. It could be NLP. I don't really know. I've never done any official NLP stuff. I've read a couple of books, but haven't really done a master practitioner, which is what they call it when you get trained. Um, and that is just using the simple phrase as I'm sure you'd appreciate. Like so many people come into, a, into an argument and they're, you're going at it like you know, two bulls head to head. And you know, they've got their, their context and they're looking at you directly and you're looking at them with your, uh, your context. And to try and get the other person to see it through your context is often hard. People try and, you know, we don't, you're not understanding me. You don't, you don't get where I'm coming from. You don't, you don't know what I mean. A simple thing I always do is, is I'll, I'll make a statement and then just say, as I'm sure you'd appreciate if you're in a similar position or as I'm sure you'd appreciate, from my perspective, this is this. And that one little sentence I've found time and time again makes people go, okay, just subconsciously, just quickly, they look at it from your context, from your point of view, from your side, and it helps starting to break down the barriers and actually open a, an, an effective dialogue. So... I thought I'd just share that because that's something that I found very helpful, as I'm sure you'd appreciate. <laughs> that's an excellent tip. I, 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 I'm not a great fan of that kind of thing, of, of the carefully chosen phrases, mainly because I come from a corporate background. Um, and we used to have a great deal of fun with the suits who used to have their little phrases. Um, so I'm a little bit allergic to them, but I do like that one because I don't think it's false. I think it's a genuine thing to say. You're actually genuinely asking somebody to take your perspective, to view things from your, your point of view, to, to just stop being just totally in their world for a second and look at it from, from, your, from your side. Um, so and it's a very good way of saying it. Um, and it also doesn't sound like corporate wankiness, which is always a bonus, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. Uh-huh. Touche. See you next week. <laughs> See you, buddy. You've been enjoying another fine episode of PrinterCast with Pete Williams and Dom Gocher. Make sure to hang out with the boys online at www.printermarketing.com or drop them a line via printercast at printergroup.com. <laughs>